Hello and welcome back to the Bible Said What podcast. Okay, so much has happened since I last recorded an episode. I think it's been like a month, (laughs) which is crazy. So I went on spring break and that was super fun. Me and my roommate, Olivia, we went to um, Madeira, Portugal, which was definitely my favorite. We were there for three days. Um, We went to Venice. We were there for like two and then Rome, which we did. We did Rome in, I think, like 36 hours, which is incredibly impressive because if you've ever been to Rome, you know there's so much to do. So we were like sprinting back and forth everywhere. It was crazy. Um, But the biggest thing I think that has happened in this time is the fact that I got to preach actually this past Sunday, so two days ago on Palm Sunday, which I'm very thankful for that opportunity. But yeah, I recorded my sermon beforehand on like to go on the podcast and then I changed it a bunch. So I decided not to air the original episode that I recorded. So now we're re-recording. Um, with the sermon that I gave. So I'll post the link to the sermon that I gave at church so you can go and you can see the service and you can see, you know, the, I guess, real-time live-action sermon if you want. But I'm really excited to record this and to um, have it podcasted because I think that's just a really cool thing that I got to do and I'm very proud of it. So yeah, let's get into it. So it is Holy Week, meaning the week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And here it's really cool seeing the difference in Holy Week in America and in London because right now in London, there's actually Ramadan going on because there's a very high Muslim population. And so if I was in America right now, there would be a bunch of Easter egg hunts and, you know, Target would be covered in pastels and it would just be, you know, something that just is very, it's a big holiday, right? It's like Christmas, then Easter. But here there's honestly like there's none of none of that because Ramadan is going on. And so like there's certain streets that are decorated for Ramadan. And, you know, you don't see a lot of Easter other than like Cadbury chocolate eggs. <laughs> but um, so I'm really glad that I got to give this sermon because it's just such a different culture that I was able to speak into. And also just seeing the differences is crazy. Um, but I did talk about Palm Sunday. And so we're going to start the sermon, I guess you can call it, in Matthew chapter 21, which I should have marked in my Bible beforehand, but did I do that? No, that's okay. I'll just turn there with you. Going to be in Matthew chapter 21, and we are going to read um, the triumphal entry, as it says in some versions. My version says Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, but we're going to start, and we're going to start in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey in the colt and placed their coats on the back of them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, 
Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this is a very happy story. This is something that is very celebratory and is very passionate and triumphal, as it says in the description, a very triumphal entry. And it's something that we celebrate today with, you know, palm branches and people in church will wear white dresses, you know, the girls. And then in my church that I preached at, they actually gave everyone crosses made of palm branches. And that was so cool because during worship, we were waving the palm branches and like the leader encouraged us to dance. And it was just a really fun environment because something about my church, side note, is that there's a congregation of maybe 60 people, right? 50, 60 people. And there are 33 different cultures and ethnicities represented in the church. And so it is just a beautiful picture of literally every tribe, tongue, and nation worship worshiping the Lord and praising God. Um, and it was so amazing to see that. But yeah, so it's something that we celebrate. But we have that celebrate like celebratory mindset because we have hindsight and we understand, oh, Jesus was coming in to free us from our sins, right? And that oppression. But in reality, that's not quite what the Jews were thinking. They didn't quite have that mindset. So as we've talked about during this time, the Jewish people were being oppressed by the Romans, right? And so they thought the Messiah was going to be someone who was like a political figure who was going to come and overthrow the Romans. That's why, like, if you read in this chapter, it says, this is Jesus, a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They called him a prophet. So they they didn't really understand this is the son of God come to fulfill the prophet or or the um, prophecy of, you know, Isaiah and, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, all those things. Um, And the palm branches that they used were actually used by the Jewish people to greet a Jewish king. Like that was what they did historically. It was a symbol of royalty and welcoming in a king. Um, And that was very defiant towards the Roman government. That was like a slap in the face to Caesar saying, hey, you're not our king. This guy is. And he's about to come in and overthrow you. And basically saying like, you know, haha, got you, right? Um, And the kings rode in on donkeys. And so that's one of the other reasons why Jesus rode in on a donkey. So this whole thing was clearly put on to make the Roman government angry, right? Um, And now we see, oh, of course Jesus is coming in as king because he's the king of our hearts, Lord of our lives, like defeated sin and death. But back then they thought, oh, This is the Messiah, the king who's going to free us from the oppression of the Romans. They didn't understand he was going to free them from the oppression of sin and death. Um, Another just side note that I want to mention is the significance of Jesus riding on a donkey that had never been ridden before. So something I think is interesting is in the Bible, there's a lot of little sentences or verses or phrases where you're like, why is that there? Like, why do we need to know that this donkey had never been ridden before? Um, And I'm from Kentucky, so I'm surrounded by horses. It's just part of the culture, right? And one thing that you just kind of know is like you don't ride a horse that has not been tamed, right? Um, and I knew this, like I knew this prior knowledge, but I was in class last semester back in America, and my religion professor was like, So guys, why is that like a miracle? Like, why how is this a miracle that Jesus was able to ride an unridden donkey? And we were all like, I don't know. And, and our professor was like, guys, you can't ride a donkey that's not broken in. Like, it'll buck you off. And we were all like, oh, because it's true. Jesus was able to ride a donkey 
that should not have been writable. <laughs> and so it's just kind of a small miracle showing Jesus's authority over creation and things like that. So moving on, we're going to move into the story of Good Friday. And I love this story, obviously, because we simply would not have the Bible if this story didn't happen. Um, it is the reason that we are Christians. It is the reason that we are freed from sin and death and can you know, have hope in the Lord and eternal life that will one day rest in the presence of God. So we're going to flip over into Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be in our Bible a lot from this point on. Um, so just hang in there with me. We're going to start in reading the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to start in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at a table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him after the other, say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him had he not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The thing that is significant in the Last Supper as, is that Jesus knew what was going to happen, right? Like he told the 12, he told Judas, he's like, yeah, you're about to betray me. He said, you know, I'm not going to share another meal with you. I'm not going to drink again with you until I'm in my Father's kingdom, right? And of course, the disciples didn't quite understand what he meant. They didn't quite, you know, I mean, how are they going to guess that Jesus was predicting his death, the crucifixion on a cross, right? But the significance was that Jesus knew what was going to happen. He fully comprehended and understood the terrible thing that he was about to go through. And yet he chose to stay. He could have walked out. He could have left the town. He could have not gone in the first place. And yet he chose to share the Passover meal, share the Seder with his disciples, right? With those that he loved um, in his last hours and not save himself. And we're going to read a little bit more about why in these next passages. So now we're going to skip over and we're going to turn to Mark chapter 14. Okay, so here's where we really get into it. Here's where we really get into the good stuff. We're going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, verses 32. But before I read this, I want to explain what the Garden of Gethsemane was. So everyone knows that it was an olive garden, right? But what you may or may not know is that a Gethsemane is an olive press. That's why it was called the Garden of Gethsemane is because they had an olive press there. So basically what it looked like is a big like bowl or like you know, well, sometimes it was, sometimes it was like a big plate. It just depended on what type. Um, and then there would be like a really big rock, like a boulder to grind the olives with. They would either roll or twist down. You could like twist with the lever. Basically, the point of it was you would put the olives in the Gethsemane and then you would use the stone to crush out the oil. And it was how you would make olive oil, right? 
So we're going to read, keep that picture in your mind, and we're going to read in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Remember, this is like the middle of the night, okay? They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, so he went away to pray again. He said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Okay, so there's two things going on here, right? First of all, I think the Garden of Gethsemane really shows Jesus's human side because Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And this is where we really see Jesus's humanity. We see his need for support, right? Everyone, all Christians, we need support in our daily walk with the Lord, especially whenever we are going through trials. You know, uh, verse, let's see what verse was it? 33 said, no, 34 said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So Jesus is deeply distressed and deeply troubled, and he needs the support of his followers of Peter and James and John. And also this further shows that he knew what was going to happen, and yet he chose to stay. Something that I also learned last year in my um, religion class is that, and I saw this too because I've been to Israel, but the topography of the Garden of Gethsemane is on a mountain, right? And you, he, basically, long story short, because I have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to summarize. Long story short, Jesus would have seen the crowds coming to arrest him when they were still very far away. Like, they didn't sneak up on Jesus. He even said, I mean, even if he hadn't seen them, he would have known. Um, he even said, look, it's time for the Son of Man to be delivered into um, the hands of the betrayer, right? Jesus could have left. He could have gone. He was on a mountain. All he had to do was cross over to the other side of the mountain and he would have been gone. They would have never even seen him. It was nighttime. So it would have been very easy for him to sneak away. And he even prayed. He was like, Lord, take this cup of suffering from me. But ultimately, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus did not want this to happen. Obviously, it's historically the most brutal way to die in all of history. But he also says, in um, a couple verses, he's like, the scriptures must be fulfilled. So we're going to read this section of when Jesus gets arrested, and then we're going to look at some biblical history. We're going to pick up in verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, every time I read that verse, I hear like a dun, 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 like Judas. <laughs> um, but the 12 appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near, who we know was Peter from the other Gospels, drew his sword and struck the ear 
of the servant of the high priest, cutting it off. Am I leading a rebellion? said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. So what does he mean by, but the scriptures must be fulfilled? We're going to flip over to Isaiah chapter 53, which honestly, I think is probably one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It perfectly depicts Jesus' death on the cross, like so accurate. I highly encourage you to go through and read the whole chapter because I'm only going to read a couple verses now. But literally, it's it was written 400 years before this, 500 years before Jesus' death. And it is just extremely word for word what happens in the crucifixion account. So I want you to keep in mind the Gethsemane and the image of the olives being crushed and pressed as I read this chapter. And we're going to read a couple verses. We're going to start in verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're going to skip over to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made the intercession for the transgressors. So we have that picture of Jesus being crushed and pressed for our transgressions because it was the Father's will. And that's exactly what Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane is, Lord, I don't want to go through this crushing. I don't want to go through this pressing, but your will be done because your will is greater than my will. So I feel like I always bring up camp, but I feel like I have to, right? I worked a summer camp. Shout out huge. I'm going to be in Texas this summer. I'm so excited, but that's a side tangent. Anyways, at camp this past year, one of the things we talked about was sacrifice. And you know, of course, when you're talking about sacrifice with 12 to 14 year olds, you have some interesting conversations. Um, (laughs) But one of the questions that we asked is, okay, what's the definition of sacrifice? Like, how do we define what that is? Because it's such a great term. And of course, very interesting answers. There would be some kids who were like, oh, is that when I get in trouble and my mom or my dad takes my phone? And I'm like, not quite, not exactly, but they have a lot of depth to them. If you're 12 to 14 years old, you are so smart. Like, shout out to you. You guys always surprise me. But the definition we came up for sacrifice was choosing to give up something you love for something more important. Choosing to give up something you love for something more important. I think that just perfectly encapsulates what Jesus did for us on the cross because clearly he was scared. He was deeply troubled and disturbed because he knew what was about to happen. Yet he chose something more important, which was the Father's will. And he trusted in the Father's will and he loves us. And so, of course, he wants that to happen as well. Um, But even though he said two times, three times in the garden, Lord, take this cup of suffering, when the time actually came, 
and even Peter tried to stop them, Jesus said, hey, this is my Father's will. These scriptures must be fulfilled. Okay, so we're going to go back to Mark chapter 14, and we are going to read about Peter betraying Jesus, which we give Peter such a hard time for this. (laughs) Like, honestly, we do. But we're going to break it down, and we're going to see what the Lord says about it, all right? Pick up in verse 66 of chapter 14. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. And remember, this is right after Jesus had been taken away and put on trial before the Sanhedrin and was, you know, being arrested. She looked, saw that he was, she said, you also were here with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and then went out into the entryway. So he deflects it and leaves. (laughs) When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now this is Peter, who was one of Jesus' most loyal disciples, right? He didn't want Jesus to wash his feet because he didn't feel worthy. And he told Jesus, like, dude, I'm going to follow you to the point of death, right? And when the crowds came to try to arrest Jesus, Peter was in fighting mode, right? Peter was a zealot, meaning he was going to go all in. And so he, like, cut off the soldier's ears, and Jesus told him, calm down, chill. And then he did follow Jesus. Like that part he was right about. He did follow Jesus, but then he hid. (laughs) As soon as it got difficult and he got called out, he ran away, right? And he uh, denied Jesus. And we can give Peter a lot of heat for that. But here's the thing. Being a follower of Jesus and being a follower of Christ is not always an easy thing to do, right? It's constantly a process of pursuing the Lord and choosing the Lord and choosing life over death, but that's not an easy thing. As Christians, we are told that, you know, in the, in the presence of the Lord, we do have joy and we do have hope and peace, but that doesn't always equate to happiness. That doesn't always equate to something that is simple and like lollipops and rainbows. And we've talked about that on the podcast before. But here's the thing. We aren't called to be perfect and we're not called to have a perfect life, but we are called to be obedient even through those trials and we're called to be faithful. And that's exactly what Jesus did by following through with the plan for him to die on the cross. It wasn't easy, yet he was still obedient to his father's will. And because of that, we are set free. Continuing on in Mark chapter 15, we are going to read about Jesus before Pilate. And this is the part of the story that always just bothers me um, with the crowds and with Pilate because everything is wrong. Even the trial that Jesus went to before the Sanhedrin, right, was completely illegal. They weren't supposed to be having a trial at night, first of all, on Passover. That was not supposed to happen. And then they had false witnesses testify against Jesus, which is, you know, self-explanatory, false witness. It's not right. And then this part is also just very twisted. So we're going to read about it. In verse 1, it says, Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. 
The chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And remember, that was releasing a prisoner to them. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate knew what was going on. He knew that it, Jesus had done nothing wrong, and he knew that the chief priests were doing it out of self-interest, as verse 10 says. But in the end, the Lord's will had to be done. Here's the thing about Barabbas. His name breaks down to two words in Hebrew. The name Bar means son, and the name Abba means father. Barabbas's name means son of the father. See where I'm going with this? I get chills every time. The son of the father, who was literally a murderer and who was a criminal, was set free. And Jesus, who is the innocent, perfect lamb sacrifice of God, took his place. And that is exactly what he does for us. That is exactly the message of the crucifixion is Jesus stepping in innocent and taking our place and taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins because we are the sons and the daughters of the Father. And these are the crowds that had just welcomed him as king, right? Just hailed him as Hosanna, Messiah, right? And they genuinely didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I just think it's crazy. Ah, I'm getting off track, but I'm just gonna keep going anyway. I just think it's crazy because there's so many things that are just so disheartening to Jesus, right? First of all, his disciple betrayed him. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The crowds shouted, crucify him. And then he literally goes on the cross. Barabbas, we know, was a murderer. And Jesus goes on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. That just blows my mind. The forgiveness of Christ is just incomprehensible. It's insane. We're going to move on. So we're actually going to jump over Gospels. <clears throat> and we're going to go to Luke chapter 23. If the Jewish people in the crowd had really understood what was going on when the son of the father was released and Jesus took their place, oh my gosh, they would be losing their minds. Okay, we're going to be in chapter 23 and we're going to pick up in verse 26. And a little... <laughs> Go back. Oh, side note. I tumbled over my words at one point during the sermon, and I said, like, my bad. Um, and one of the ladies who I work with was watching the live stream, and she texted me after, and she was like, Liz, I've never heard someone say my bad from the pulpit. <laughs> it was really funny. But verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way home from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who had mourned and wailed for him. 
And we're going to skip down to verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I just think that's crazy. Like I said, the incomprehensive forgiveness. I don't even know if that's a word. Like the unfathomable forgiveness of Christ, where these people were crucifying him. They were mocking him. They were spitting on him. They had beat him. And yet still he says, Father, forgive them. That's all. He doesn't say anything else. Nothing bad. Nothing condemning. When he had the power to do that, let's be honest. No. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And that's true. They genuinely didn't understand. But still, if I was in that situation, mm -mm, nope, couldn't do the same, could not do the same thing. And that's what he does for us is he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what to do. I can't believe it. Anyways, we're going to keep moving on. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what I think is interesting? Is on Palm Sunday, the Jewish people were hailing in Jesus as king, right? So him coming into his kingdom, but they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand that his kingdom was heavenly. But this criminal, who may or may not be a Jewish person, we don't know. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he knew that that meant heaven. He knew that Jesus was the son of God. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. I just think that is so amazing. And once again, at any point, Jesus could have saved himself because we don't deserve to be in paradise with our father, right? But let's be honest. I mean, we don't deserve to be called sons and daughters of the father because sin causes a separation between us. But because Jesus loves us so much, he says, Father, forgive them. And he says, truly, today you will be with me in paradise whenever you accept and believe. We are the rebels in this story, right? We are the Barabbas. We are the Peters. We are even like, let's be honest, we can be like Jews sometimes. We choose the world over our father, I mean, daily when we sin. That's what sin is, right? At any point, Jesus could have said, you know what? I'm done. Y'all don't deserve it anymore. I'm getting down. Peace out. Go back up to heaven, right? He didn't have to go through that. But he chose to die a rebel's death in our place. And that is what we deserve. And here's the thing. If we had died the death that we deserve, and let's say we had died on the cross, the cross would have remained like a black mark in history. The cross was the most brutal and horrific way to die in all of history. The Romans had it down to a science because as they were oppressing the Jews and their people, they used the cross as a fear tactic. In a bunch of like paintings and things like that of Jesus being crucified, you know, the cross is up on this really pretty hill, like there's a, the sunset in the back and it's this dramatic thing, but that's not how it was at all. Um, the Romans would crucify people and put up the crosses like on the road. So whenever people would walk by, they would see how awful it was. And it was, like I said, it was used to scare people and to control them. 
And if we had died on the cross, that's all it ever would have been. It would have remained that. But here's the thing. Jesus died on the cross. And now we have crosses in our churches to show that we have joy and freedom in the presence of the Lord. And that is what the glory of the cross is. And that is what the story of the gospel is, is Jesus taking death and darkness and sin and fear And when he takes it, he turns it into everlasting life and hope and peace and joy. And so something that we, it's like something we wear over our hearts on necklaces to show that we are claimed by the King of Kings and that sin and death don't reign over us anymore. I just, it's, I think it's crazy because Jesus literally took a sign of ultimate death and turned it into a sign of ultimate life. Verse 44 says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now verse 44 and verse, let's see what time was, yeah, verse 44 is another one of those verses where I'm like, why is that important? Because it mentions the times, the times that Jesus was put on the cross when he died and when he you know, gave up his spirit, when it got dark and when he gave his spirit, my bad. So the times are nine o'clock when he was put on the cross and then 12 when darkness came over the land and then three o'clock when he gave up his spirit. It was Passover, right? And so what would happen on Passover is the high priest would go to the temple and all of the Jewish people would bring him their sacrifices. And those sacrifices would begin at nine o'clock in the morning and they would end at three o'clock in the afternoon. And whenever all of the sacrifices were done to signify that all of the people's sins had been forgiven and that they were all atoned, he would wet his lips and he would say, it is finished, declaring that it was finished, that all of the people had been purified and cleansed and that they could go and live in freedom. So whenever Jesus died, when he was put on the cross at nine and when he died at three o'clock, that was signifying that it was finished. All the sacrifices were done, not only for Passover, but for all of eternity, for all of the people, for anyone who believed in him. He was the final perfect sacrifice for all of our sins so that we no longer have to live in separation from the Lord. The veil in the, in the temple tore in two to signify that anyone could go and be in the presence of God because that veil separated um, the temple, the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which is where, you know, the Lord God, Heavenly Father lived and presided. And only one person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. But when that veil tore in two, it was signifying that anyone could go and have eternal life in the presence of the Lord. And anyone could go be with the Lord at any point because we were made pure by the blood of Jesus. This week or today, if you haven't accepted that message, if you haven't accepted what Jesus has done for you on the cross, or even if you have questions, there's literally no better time to go and talk to someone about it. It is Easter season. This is when we celebrate Jesus taking our sins. This is when we celebrate him rising from the dead because, you know, obviously this is not what I preached on, but plot twist, Jesus didn't stay dead, right? (laughs) He rose three days later um, and he left our sins in the grave with him. He died on the cross and took our sins and then he took took them to the grave, but he left them there and he walked out pure and holy as he makes us and how he calls us to be. 
So if you have questions about that, or if you haven't accepted that, go to your pastor this Sunday, go to an adult you trust, and don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to talk to them about that because accepting that gift of free salvation, that's another thing. You don't have to do anything to earn it, right? None of these people in the Bible deserved it. The Roman centurion, the criminal on the cross, Peter, the crowds, none of them deserved God's forgiveness. And yet Jesus still said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do because he was obedient to God's will. And God's will is that he wants us to be united with him in his presence for all of eternity. And that is the message of the gospel. Without that message, we would not have a Bible. We would not be Christians. Um, and that is just the glory of God. So I'm going to pray us out. And I hope that you have just a wonderful Easter and a wonderful Holy Week. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, Lord. We thank you for your love and your mercy and that we didn't deserve it, but yet you still decide to offer us grace. Lord, we thank you so much for just the glory that we can walk in and the hope that we can have in your son, God. And we'd like to pray that this week we will really understand that and just impress that upon our hearts in a way that we have never experienced it before, Lord. We thank you for all of the family that we're spending time with this week and just that we can celebrate your glory, God. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.